0: This morning at the last minute, I asked Bishop to change up the song service so that we could put that song in and to end that song on that verse right before I got up to speak. Her strength unequaled to her task, rise up and make her great. The theme for our our study this morning, you were made for this, you were made for involvement in the local church. Before we do that, a confession and then a two-part apology. Here it goes. Well, maybe this should be a three-part apology now that I think about it. So in my grand total of one and only public speaking class that I ever took, my freshman year of college, yes, indeed, my biology degree got me really well prepared for this present employment. Professor Paul Prill was the uh, teacher in that class, and, and he... I remember very well him saying, never, ever, ever start a presentation with an apology. Never start a a presentation with an apology. Well, I'm going to make two. First, I'm going to apologize to Dr. Paul Prill, who I actually still am in touch with. We're still friends, and I still admire him greatly. But I'm going to apologize to Dr. Paul for not taking his advice, and I'm going to make the real apology to you the MCOC family, on behalf of myself and on behalf of generations of preachers who've done something wrong for a long time. And this morning, I'd like to try to take a small step in a better direction of doing something different and hopefully better. For the better part of 70 years, we as a church of, not we as a church here, but we as a church universal, have fallen into what I think is a very unhealthy pattern of encouraging involvement, of encouraging involvement using guilt and fear, shame and obligation. I can tell you this, I've preached this sermon, not this sermon, but the sermon that I'm alluding to. I've preached the sermon that was directed at trying to raise membership involvement, and I've preached it well according to the standards that we knew. I've preached the, you need to be more involved in church and do more work and get involved in more projects. Using guilt and shame and obligation to try to pull heartstrings and push and prod people in to doing more. In fact, even that sermon title, you need to get more involved in church and I'm going to use guilt and obligation and a little shame to do it was actually on the sign outside the church. No, it really wasn't. But it could have been. It could have been the sign outside the church of more than one church. In fact, it could have been the sign outside this church because I've preached that sermon here and I've preached that sermon other places that I've been. But you know, that's not really the sermon that should be preached. And what's scary about it is that sermon sort of works. That sermon sort of works and that's why we preachers keep going back to it over and over and over again because we can get up and we can pile on the shame and guilt and and we can pull the heartstrings and we can poke in pride and guess what happens? The next week attendance is a little better and and maybe somebody volunteers to be a classroom teacher or maybe a project that needed some some help, some volunteers, suddenly gets a few more people. But you know what we find is that that's not really deep change. It's momentary change. it's It's not really lasting change what we forget in the pulpit is something that we remember in parenting and I remember in parenting I know in parenting and you do too that I can sometimes guilt and shame my kids into something but that's not going to be a lasting change that's going to be real character building it's going to be something that they're going to do and they're going to go through with but they're going to be seething with resentment the whole time that they're doing it. No, I know that in parenting if I want real change I have to connect on a deeper level but I don't know why it is that we in the pulpit have forgotten that if we want real change, we have to connect on a deeper level, a level deeper than shame and guilt. But there's always obligation too, right? A call to duty. And a call to duty is important, but even that can have its weakness. If I appeal to you as a congregation to be more involved out of a sense of obligation and responsibility it can very well be something that you do in a very dispassionate way for example i have an obligation to change the oil in my car i'm not passionate about it i'm not excited about the proposition i don't wake up every 3 months and say woohoo, this is it i've looked for- no i don't it's something that you just you just do and you know what i find is that when we do things out of a sense of obligation that's really what it becomes just something that we simply do out of a sense of obligation my my thought is that I don't believe I don't believe that God created this wonderful institution of a church I don't believe that Jesus left us the lasting continuation of his mission to push back the gates of hell to push back the darkness of the world to reach out to the world with the good news of Jesus Christ and that we're to be motivated to do it out of a sense of guilt shame and obligation I think he gave us better parameters I think he gave us better motivations And so while I have preached that sermon before, I'm going to try this morning to stand in the place where 100 years, in January by the way, 100 years of men have stood in my place as this congregation is about to celebrate its 100th anniversary. And we're going to try this morning to look at the whole idea of motivating involvement from a paradigm that's more in keeping with what scripture teaches and more what we know to be true about the Bible, rather than what has been the practice for the last 70 years or so. Here's where we've gone wrong, I think. I think one of the ways that we've gone wrong is that we've missed the whole vision, we've missed the whole big picture, we've missed the grand vision and purpose of the church. You see, we have, as we talked about last week, reduced the church down to something that it's not, and when we reduce the church down to something that's not, it shouldn't not surprises that the motivation that's intrinsic of being a part of something that's as wonderful as the church goes down too. If the church is everything the church is supposed to be, I think we're going to find the enthusiasm for it is going to be where it needs to be. But the problem starts with the fact that we've not allowed the church to be what it is. The church is not a social club or a spiritual clinic. When we reduce it to that, we shouldn't be surprised that people have the level of involvement that they would have to a social club or the level of involvement that we would have to a spiritual clinic. So this morning what I want to do is I want to take just a moment, I want to back, 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 back to where we're supposed to be. So oftentimes I hear preachers, and I even say it myself sometimes, we need to get back to the Acts 2 church. We need to be more like the Acts 2 church. We need to be more like the early church in the first century. Well, for us to do that, we need to understand a little bit about what the first century was really like. Because I think you're going to find that the first century is not just an old-fashioned version of the 21st century. It's considerably different. There's a lot that's different today. Our our values, our thoughts, our morality, our our, our cognitive development, the way we look at the world is much different today than it was back in the first century. First century historian Tom Holland, in a recent book, talked about the fact that the, 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 the Roman Empire into which the church was birthed was a place of brutality and savagery. It was just a terrible, terrible place. I know we talked about this last week, but let me just recap real fast a couple of things. The economy. The economy of the world was based mostly on slave labor. Slave labor came from uh, people who were conquered. That's a horrible economic system. Thank God our system today is better. We might have complaints about today's economic system, but it's better than one that we find in the first century. Social status. Social status back then was predicated on wealthy people preying on those that are are less... uh, less, uh, Less wealthy. They have less opportunities. Thankfully, today, we live in a society where people can come from lower strata and make their way up. What about the institution of marriage? That's a beautiful institution. Well, back then, it was mostly a matter of men choosing for the women, no choice for themselves, misogyny, abuse, and the men had the opportunity to cheat as much as they wanted. This is the world that the church was birthed into. This is the world the church was birthed into. Glorification of sexual exploitation. Glorification of violence. Entrenched racial, social, political, religious persecution. Check the boxes. That's the first century world. That's the the world the church was born into. Take one of the key players of Jesus' life, his ministry here on the earth, Augustus Caesar one of the most revered leaders of that time. He was responsible for two major genocides, the persecution of two major religions, 14 foreign campaigns, the most extensive execution of Roman citizens that the world had ever known to that point. We may not have great leaders all the time, but we don't have leaders like that. My point is that we can't assume that the first century was just the 21st century without electricity. It was a much, much different world. So what happened between the 1st century and the 21st century? What has happened that has caused things to evolve in such wonderful and good ways? Can I tell you frankly what happened? The church happened. The continuing mission of Jesus Christ to push back the darkness, to attack the gates of hell, that's what's happened. And we see it in so many aspects of our world. What is the greatest force for good in the last 2,000 years on this earth? It's been the church. And the church is responsible for so many of the changes that we see. Dramatic, systemic, generational change has happened in our world because the church was the church. Last week we talked a great deal about that. But how do we know if we're being the church? How do we know if we personally are being the church, if we're personally contributing to, if we're personally putting our weight behind the collective push of the church against the darkness around us? Well, I'll tell you one way. It's going to shape us, it's going to mold us, it's going to change us. It's going to reshape our our social identity. It's going to reshape our idea of of what's valuable, of what's purposeful, of what's intentional. It's going to reshape our philosophy. It's going to reshape the way we live a practical life. It's going to reshape the way we spend our time and the way we spend our money. In other words, it's going to drastically reshape who we are. It's going to make us different people. Romans chapter 6, the first of a couple of passages I'll read here quickly as we're setting setting the table for the discussion we're going to have. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin, and you've become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of human limitations. But just as you offer used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now you offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading, to holiness. Did you see right there where where Paul went? Paul said, here's how you know if you're being the church. Here's how you know if the transformation is taking place. Here are some things that you should look for and understand about what it means to be a part of this wonderful force that's pushing back the darkness in the world. You used to be a slave to sin. You used to give yourself over to that master. You have a new master. You live a new life. You live a different way. Everything in your life is now different. Paul would say to the Philippian church, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The reality is that it is within the church that all these things are found. It is here as part of that to which you and I were added when we were baptized, when we were saved, we were made part of the church. And how do we know if we are being part of the church? Because we see the transformation taking place in our lives day after day, moment by moment. We are participating shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with others that are also in the business of sharing the good news with Jesus, of Jesus Christ with the lost world and pushing back the darkness. We're here to continue the mission that Christ began. So may I say, frankly, that it's disparaging to our purpose that motivation to be involved should be based on guilt and shame and obligation. That, that, that lessens our purpose. We're here for a grander cause. We're here for a bigger picture. The first century was a mess. The 21st century is still a mess, but it's less of a mess than it was. And that's largely responsible to the work of the church. What's the 24th century going to look like? What are we doing today to make an impact there? When we look at our heritage, when we look at our, our history we see a challenge that is resonating through the millennia past. A a voice that calls out from the past and says, look at what we changed. Look at what we, the church, did. Look at the good that we caused. And that voice also says, what are you contributing to the cause, 21st century? What are you bringing to the table? How do we answer that voice? How do we answer that voice from the past? This voice from the past that says, we got rid of slavery. We got rid of misogyny. We brought, we, we brought beauty to marriage. We brought sanctity to sexuality. What does the voice of today answer back? The voice of the past, as we said last week, brought wonderful things like, like hospitals and, and, and service to the orphans and orphans' homes and, and, and care for the widows. And that voice says, what are you 21st century doing? The Hebrew writer, to steal a phrase from the Hebrew writer, we stand surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses as these. 2,000 years of church history that holds up with pride the contributions to a better world that they've brought. And it asks us, how are we? changing the world my friends I'm not going to appeal to you on grounds of guilt and shame but I'm going to hold up before you the cross of Christ and its overlooming shadow and say in light of that how should we be different I'm going to hold up to you the fact that for 2,000 years the church has been the greatest force for good in the world and I'm going to ask how can we in light of that contribute to the cause of Christ's continuing mission in the church today. Three R's that I want you to remember. If you're a note taker, if you're a person who jots in your Bible, you might want to jot down these three words. They all start with the letter R. (coughs) The first is result. The second is reality. And the third is remembered. Result. What is the result of the church in the past? That's the first thing. What is the result of the church in the past? Secondly, reality. What is the reality of the moment in which we live? And third, remembered. How do we want to be remembered someday for the years that we are at the head of this wonderful institution and force that we call the church? I'll go quickly through the first one because I know we've spent a lot of time on it, but I think it is important. Result. What has the church done? What has the church resulted in? It's nearly impossible to quantify all the things that we've talked about, all the things that we've seen and all the things that we could display of the good that the church has done in the world. But let's take one verse. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This verse has been a motivating force for members of the church to take up their task, contribute meaningfully in involvement to the furtherance of the church, and to make a difference alongside of others. Let me give you a couple of examples of people that come to mind for me in this last week as I've been researching this. And I think about the church and I think about people who have contributed, involved themselves, engaged in the work of the church in a way that's powerfully changed our world. And a couple of people come to mind. One of them is one that you know very well. She's introduced to us in the Bible. Her name's Lydia We know she's a seller of purple, you know the story of Lydia, you know how that she was at Philippi, she was down by the river, she was there praying, Paul came and met her, Paul worked with her, she ended up hosting the church in her her own home. She ended up uh, contributing enormous amounts of money to the needs of the church early on. She was a wonderful person in the history of the early church. What story we don't know from the Bible, we hear from the pages of history. You might remember that corollary in Philippi with the story of Lydia, there was the story of a little girl who was possessed by a demon. This little girl was exploited by her masters to go around and make money for them because of the tricks they could make her do because of this demon. When, through the Holy Spirit, the demon was cast out, they didn't want the little girl anymore. And tradition tells us, history tells us, that Lydia adopted that little girl. And that little girl was given a good home. Can I say to you that that is societal change and that is deep personal involvement. Take Phoebe. Phoebe, we know, famously took that letter to the church at Rome, a dangerous job, taking that very, very inflammatory message right under the noses of the Roman guards who would very much have liked to have thrown her out for that. She she was threatened uh, in every possible way and yet she carried a letter that has shaped the church and shaped our doctrine more than anything else, singularly, that we have. That's deep involvement. That's societal change. That's stuff you talk about hundreds of years later. But let's get a little more close to home. What about closer to our time period, a man named John Newton? John Newton is an interesting story. John Newton was a man who, as a child, was actually kidnapped and was a slave himself. He escaped from that slavery and apparently learned nothing at all from his escapades because he became a slave trader, captain of a slave ship, traveling back and forth from England to Africa, collecting Africans, bringing them, selling them, making a great, great wealth until he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, he turned his life over to Christ. And for the last 50 years of his life, he became a devoted minister, He became a strict abolitionist. In fact, he lived just long enough to see slavery abolished in England, only a couple of months. You probably remember him as an author to a song, Wondrous Things of Thee Are Spoken, or maybe the song that we just sang, Amazing Grace. You see, that's societal change. That's the kind of stuff you look and you go, the church was doing stuff. And he was deeply involved in it. Frances Willard, known as the international leader of the women's suffrage movement, several nations, including our own, credit her with being one of the key reasons that women got the right to vote. It was interesting that she would travel all around the world and she was always asked to speak about suffrage. She was always asked to speak about what motivated her. What was her reason for, for wanting so badly to have these rights for women? She spoke thousands and thousands and thousands of times and each time she spoke on the same text. Galatians 3.28 One in Christ. She was unashamedly a believer in Jesus Christ. And she presented the message of the gospel everywhere she went. And she made a change in our world and society that's still remembered today. Last one, I'll go quick. But I love this story. It's a story I never heard until this week. And his name was Christian Führer. I'm sure I'm saying that last name wrong. It's a German name. Christian lived in East Germany during the Cold War. Some of us are of a certain age, myself included. Remember that uh, the Cold War was a thing. And East and West Germany was a thing. And the Berlin Wall was a thing. Well, Christian was heartbroken. He was heartbroken as he looked around and he saw the oppression of the people that he lived around in East Germany. He was heartbroken when he thought about the world his children were growing up in. The, the fact that there was so much, dis, just so much fear and so much concern. If you were alive during those years, you know what it was like. It was, a, it was an oppressive time. But Christian was going to do something about it. And so Christian went across the street to another family who was also members at his church and said, would you come over on Monday night and would you pray with my family and yours for peace for our country, reunification of Germany, and peace in the world? Monday after Monday after Monday, these families prayed together and they increased in number. And before long, their prayers had great effect. The Berlin Wall did come down. Germany was reunited, and we saw the Cold War ease. One of the ceremonies remembering that, or uh, celebrating the removal of the Berlin Wall, actually mentioned Christian Führer as one of the key contributing reasons why the wall came down. It's also interesting to note that what started with five people every Monday grew to more than 70,000 people who got together all in homes around East Germany to pray on Monday night for God to move in their country. You see, my friends, that's the church being the church. And it means that you and I find a place within that to make our mark, to give our contribution. These men and women worked tirelessly in the church. And may I suggest that they did not do it out of guilt, shame, or obligation. But they did it with a joyful understanding of what they were a part of. They did it with a joyful celebration of knowing they are part of the continuing mission of Jesus Christ in this world. To seek and save the lost and to push back the darkness. You see, they didn't need to be motivated by guilt and shame because they had a clear picture of what it meant to be the church. Galatians 3.28, 1 in Christ. A passage that ripples out through the world. Brian, in his illustration from the Lord's table of the stone, so beautifully illustrated exactly the thought that I had this week. Because this passage of Scripture says just that. It, it rippled out in the first century to include Gentiles at a time when they were rejected. It rippled out in the 4th century to include barbarian races that had no place in the church, so they thought. It rippled out in the 13th century in the form of citizens having more and more freedoms. It rippled out in the 16th century as people were finally able to choose their own faith, not simply the faith that was handed to them by the government. It rippled out in the 17th century, the 18th century in the form of enlightenment. It rippled out in the 19th century as it ended slavery. It rippled out in the 20th century as it saw women get votes, as it saw later in the 20th century civil rights movements and, and races being recognized as equal and valuable. What did all that? The church. It's been separated by time and distance. It's been separated over hundreds of years, thousands of years. But the church, the continuing mission of Jesus Christ, fueled by individuals, not driven by shame and guilt, but by driven by enthusiasm and excitement and passion for what it is that we're called to be and do, have changed the world. And the first century calls to the 21st and asks, what are we doing? And the 21st looks ahead to the 25th. To say, how will be we be remembered? You know, we live in a specific time and place. We live in a specific circumstance and moment. And we live right here. We live right here in this place. We live right here in this time. And so the question now comes, what does the church, this church, this congregation, what does the church universal do in the moment that we've been given? What does it do with the challenges that we have? Where do we see the darkness that needs pushed back? How is it that we're moving to make sure that everyone around us has the opportunity to say yes to King Jesus? Well, i tell you how we don't do it. We don't do it by reducing the kingdom of God to a social club. We don't do it by reducing it down to a place where you come once a week to get a spiritual fix. See, that's not what it is. And can we blame the world for looking at us and looking at us that way when we've told them that's what we are? And frankly, if that is all we are, it's no wonder we're not motivated to be more involved. But the good news is, that's not what the church is. And we have a stronger motivation than any of this. You know, in our world, there's a lot. There's a lot. It's easy to look at our world and get really beaten down. It's easy to look at our world and say, you know what, there's just so much wrong. But the good news is, God has promised us if we fight, we will not lose. Paul says we are more than conquerors through Christ. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's no battle we can't overcome. There's no darkness the church can't push back. There's no stronghold of Satan that the church can't overcome because it is not in our power it is not because of our wisdom it's not because of our strength it's because of the god that we serve and the continuing mission of jesus christ that we have the opportunity the honor of being able to herald into our modern world it's a hard place it's a tough time but i would say our world is a time of great promise and great hope and i would say we live on a precipice of great opportunity And we need to step into that with a great understanding of what the church is and what our place in it can be. So a final question, a final thought. We remember the church past and what it's done. How will the church future remember us? You know, if the church in Rome or the church in Corinth or the church in Ephesus had just ceased to exist, you would have had orphans that would have been homeless, You would have had widows starving in the streets. You would have had poor people that weren't taken care of. You would have had sick people that were left to die on their own. You see, if those churches were were removed from their communities, the community would know. The community would mourn. The community would weep. What if the church in Marysville just ceased to be? What would the community do? Would they weep and mourn? Would there be orphans uncared for? Would there be widows that don't don't have what they need? Would there be poor people that ask, how now? Would the community notice? Would they miss us? That line of reasoning is very uncomfortable for me. It's a question I like to answer and I don't want to answer. But the bottom line is that. How would we be remembered? How will we be remembered? How are we remembered right now by the people who live in that community? I want us to be a church that transforms the community. I want us to be a church that feeds the hungry. I want us to be a church that clothes the naked. I want to be a church that serves the prisoner. I want to be a church that presents boldly, proudly, clearly the good news of Jesus Christ, and I say that because I believe the church is the continuing mission of Jesus Christ in the world today. And that's what Jesus did. That means involvement. That means me. And it means you. It means our elders. It means our deacons. It means our ministry leaders it means every single member of this congregation recognizing the opportunity that you have to contribute to the ongoing work of this kingdom of God in this community right now i'll stay it in this and i'll be done you were made for the church you were made to be involved in the church and the church was made for specifically what you bring Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, it talks about the fact that before time began, from the very, very beginning, God looked ahead and he said, I know I'm going to make this person, I'm going to make this person, I'm going to put them in this church, I'm going to have them in this church for this opportunity, and I'm going to give them this gift so that they have the gift that they need for the opportunity I put before them. He said it this way, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. You know what, the fact that you're here right now means that God has a plan for you. You were given a gift that was specifically for the purpose of continuing the mission of Jesus Christ as part of this church community in the the time, in the place, in the circumstance, in the community, in the place, in the, the moment that we find ourselves right now. The question is not whether I can prod and poke and grab and pull and beg you to be involved. The question is, do we really believe what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2? that God gave each one of us a gift, a talent, for the opportunity of this moment. And if we really do, and we really do understand what the church really is, motivation to serve and be involved is not going to be a problem. It's going to be a natural expression of what we already know to be true. My friends, that's the reality. Not guilt and shame, but a clearer picture of what the church is and a better understanding of your vitally important place within it, and mine, and ours. Let's pray. God, we want so much to be the church that you want us to be, that you made us to be, that you know we can be, and that you empower us to rise to be. Her strength unequaled to its task. Help us, Lord, to rise up and make her great. Help us to make a difference in this community. Help us to push back the gates of hell where we are. Help us to proclaim the good news of your son to all. Help us to be the church. God, this is our prayer. And it's through your son we pray it.